0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Asian Americans. This is your host, Jerry Wan. Thank you so much for tuning in. Really, really excited to share my conversation with my high school friend, Jared Chung, today. Jared is the founder and CEO of Career Village. Career Village is an online platform where students and young professionals ask you, the general public, about education, about career, about jobs, and we go in and answer them. To date, in the last nine years of its existence, they have answered more than 4.5 million questions. Jared and I met in high school back in the Bronx more than 20 years ago, and since then, uh, through his education at Binghamton NYU, his early career started at McKinsey, his involvement with the TEDx Cambridge network, and now eventually running Career Village, Jared has really shown us that you can take your passion and make it a job, make it a viable operation and do it from the most purest of desires and purest of hearts. So really, really lucky to, one, call Jared my friend, and two, to have him on this show. Um, If you have a moment as you're listening to this or afterwards, please do visit careervillage.org. Sign up and share the resource with any students or young professionals in your life, particularly those who may not have access to people. Uh, with the jobs that they want to pursue or with the knowledge of the educational system, uh, the ultimate goal of Career Village, as we will talk about in the show, is to build is to bridge the achievement gap so that everybody has the same opportunities and that everybody has the ability to get their questions answered about careers and jobs that they have always been curious about. So thank you so much for listening. And here now my and here now is my conversation with Jared. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another great episode of the Asian Americans. Actually, we don't know if it's going to be great yet or not, but I think it's going to be great. Crossing Um, our fingers. Crossing our fingers. Um, We have a really, really fun guest today. I've I've known this guest, Jared, uh, now 23 years, going back all the way to high school. And if you've been listening to this show for a little while, you know that most of my friends are guests or the other way around. Most of our guests are friends and we're old enough now where high school friends count as the, oh, my God, I've known somebody for 20 plus years. Jared's been an amazing friend. Uh, he's done some great work in the community, and he's taken a, a different path. If you are listening to this right now and you're a college junior or older, top thing on your mind right now might be, oh, my God, what do I do in terms of a job? Um, perhaps you're listening because your uh, offer was rescinded, or you are approaching summer with no internship opportunities. Um, things are changing very quickly, and businesses are choosing not to continue their internship programs or perhaps uh, putting uh, stops on it all and worse yet if you're graduating whether from undergrad or from graduate school uh, not only are there fewer opportunities um, you don't even know if the ones that you have um, are going to be there in a few months when you're supposed to start we're hearing way too many stories from all sorts of different companies small and large on the ever-changing landscape so Jared many many years ago has decided to do something about that and it is not a quick band-aid fix it is to really build a long-term community to help students and people seeking answers about careers with those who are lucky and fortunate to be in those. We're going to be talking about that and a lot more fun stuff. So hey, Jared, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jerry. We are now both on the uh, the west coast of America. Although we, we are now. School, uh, we, we are now. And it's, it's, it's sunny both where you and I are. Um, but we grew up or we met in high school in New York City. Um, we went to high school in the Bronx together. And you know, when we, when we went to school, it was an interesting demographic, right? Because it was a school that was a test in school um, for folks who are unfamiliar with Bronx Science. It is a, a part of the specialized high school program in New York City, where um, any student who attends junior high uh, can take a test. And if you score a certain amount, you can choose to go to Bronx Science or um, one of the other really, really great schools in the city. But it does pull from the population of the entire five boroughs. Um, is the school reflective of this population of new York City unfortunately not um, but not, a good thing I guess not even really that got to be really
1: already, close
0: not, not really close um, but it is better it was more reflective than where you would have gone to school locally because New York city from yep. a demographical perspective is extremely segregated and there's a lot of differences of availability and opportunities based on and even what neighborhood you are in the same borough really, really wanted, fascinated to learn about your upbringing. How did the Chung family come about?
1: Um, how did your father move to the States? Um, where were you born? where did you grow up? Tell us all about your childhood. Happy to. So I was actually born in California, although you're right, we, we met in high school in New York. Um, but I was born in California uh, and, um, and I'm multiracial, but the Asian American part of my family um, came to the U.S. many generations ago. Um, when we go try to pin it down, it looks like I'm the seventh generation on the Chinese side here in the U.S. a so really long time. Um, but uh, it uh, it was sort of, um, I guess we were chain migrators. You know, somebody came along and then you get another one, the next generation, another one, the next generation, and somebody comes in every generation, all the way down to my grandmother, who was born in China. Um, but uh, uh, but yeah, those seven generations have been in California uh, as Chung's or as Louis's Uh, for, for, for a long time. Um, And, uh, and I moved to New York when I was about maybe four or five years old. Uh, My parents separated uh, and then each remarried. And I lived, um, I lived in New York during the school year with my mom in California during the summers with my dad.
0: How was that for you being in in terms of identity? Because not only was it separation of, or, or a difference of mom versus dad, but New York City and California are so different um that it feel like living in two different worlds depending on what time of year it was
1: Yeah, you know, it's pretty different. Um I think I'd, I'd say in both cases look, I you know, both community, both both states are great place to live. Big communities. It's a not a hard place to be an Asian American relative to a lot of a lot of communities across the United States. Um so, you know, certainly similarities. I'd say um Identity. I mean, it was it was tricky. It's a little tricky for me. Uh, part part of part of the identity challenge that I had as a as just a very young person, even in in grade school, um, was that I didn't identify at all as Chinese or Asian American at the beginning. Um, I was my 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 father, who's Chinese, um, didn't identify as Chinese American. Uh, he didn't speak any Chinese of any kind enjoy Chinese food, uh, participated in certain Chinese traditions, but not much. Um, it was his parents who identified as Chinese. And so I think, and this is a classic story, a lot of folks, second generation, a little bit of a focus on assimilation, maybe not as much going back to roots or anything like that. Um, so in those early years for me as a New Yorker, I, th- I thought of myself more as a New Yorker at one point, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think if you, in grade school enough in New York city, um, start to identify with where you go to, where you go to school. So I, I was, I felt more New Yorker, um, and, but not really, um, feeling a part of the, the Chinese community in New York very much. My elementary school had very few Asians in it. Uh, -hmm. my junior high school had very few Asians in it. And it was when I went to Bronx science where suddenly, um, I met a huge number of Asian Americans where the Asians are, I I think back then they were, we were the majority in the school. I can't quite remember. It was like right about 50, 50, if not more than 50% Asian American. Um, And, uh, and that changed a lot. Um, That's the first time I had, to be honest with you, it's actually, I think it's the first time I actually felt embraced by a community around identity. The people like would meet me in Bronx science and they'd say, they like, they sort of. I felt. I don't know. I, they. I felt like they accepted me already, and that had never happened to me before. Um, and so there was sort of. An e- it felt easy to make friends in a way that I, I hadn't understood uh, was a challenge before. I started to think of myself as more Asian American when people started to think of me as Asian American or Chinese American or or what have you. Um, and I. I really loved that time. Uh, I, look, I don't know if anybody loves everything about high school. It's it's objectively, it's a tough time, right? Um, and for any high schoolers who are actually listening in, I'll go ahead and say, you know, barring major challenges in your life in the future, barring, to, you know, terrible health crises or other major challenges, which I hope you do not face, in many ways, high school can be like the hardest part of life and things do get better afterward for many people. So, you know. There is a lot of light on the other end of the tunnel of high school. Um, but for me, there was a lot about it that I really loved. And, and, and part of it was a discovering that I had an identity that I could accept if I wanted, um, where people accepted me um, just by virtue of what they thought I was. Um, and at, partly as a result of that later on in life and something happy to discuss, you know, I turned back to China. I went, I lived in China. I moved to China. uh, I started to learn Chinese. And so I kind of brought back, um, you know, a little bit of that Chinese identity. But still, first one in my family, in my generation, to go back to China. And I believe the only one in my generation at the moment who speaks any Chinese at all. Wow.
0: I mean that's fascinating. You might, from a generational perspective, you might hold hold the current uh, record or, or title for forty some odd guests. Forty, yeah, some odd Oh, guess the if, seventh generation. How, how long? Eh? Yeah, because that's fascinating. Because most most you know most Koreans are max three. Uh, most yep. Vietnamese folks are post war, right? So nineteen seventy five and beyond. Um, yeah, and so I, I think that's really interesting that you have now um, gone quote unquote back home, not not only physically but also from a academic and cultural perspective
1: um you know right before we jumped on you said you had to print stuff for your daughter's chinese school which yeah is, which you know i delayed I our recordings recording so i could print out the, no, yeah yeah so
0: for, for all the right reasons but it means that you're that's important enough for you to teach her the language and the culture right and it's something my wife and i talk about right so we have two kids um three and one and Obviously, we live in Los Angeles, so there's a lot of opportunities to exercise and, and participate in our Korean culture, and um, my parents don't speak great English, so, you know, in Korean would be, but even how do you balance that, right? Because it's it's not binary, and in perfect world, they yeah. grow up learning both languages, but um, but yeah, let, let's go, I, I think, I want to make a quick point on, on our high school experience, um, yeah. just to give people context on what kind of school it was.
1: What a weird school. It was school.
0: almost... It was a weird school. A so weird Asian population school, yeah. over-indexed, right? It definitely over-indexed from the majority of, or I guess, reflection of the New York City population. Um, if you're following it politically, there's a lot of stuff um, before COVID nineteen of all the politics behind, or the politics behind, um, should the testing, as it is, Huge yeah, it has been forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the benefit is, like, like you said, it was an opt-in process. This is not the neighborhood school you zoned into, meaning yeah. that whether by choice of the student or by the parents. People wanted to go there. People chose to go there. It was not easy to get there physically because it was way the heck up in the very, very northeastern part of the Bronx. Um, but I think the connection part has a lot to do with the structure of the school. Um, sure, uh, depending on where you went to high, or junior high school in the city, you ended up going to Bronx Science or any of the specialized high schools with a group of friends. And perhaps it was your neighborhood, family, family friend or church friends you went there uh, with together. But by and large, um, and look, I moved there from California direct, we moved that summer, right? So um, I had one friend who was uh, BJ, Big John, because we went to uh, Summer Academy together. Outside of that, I had nobody, but I also felt very close and home because when we showed up on the first day of freshman year, nobody knew, nobody. Everybody was like, all right, I guess we're gonna do this Um, and, you know, sort of uh, rebuild their identity and and start from anew. So I think it's, it sounds like for you as it was for me it was the opportunity to chart a new path opportunity to make new friends reinvent yourself um, sure and but you know that wasn't all, all positive like my, my brother came in as a sophomore and um sophomores into science were very very small so by the time he got there friendships were already built and you know all, yep. all the group, all the, the social structure hierarchy had already been set thank you for that context i, I think it's um really really cool to get that um, you decided to stay in New York City for college and just went down to, um,
1: to NYU. Well, not quite. I actually went to SUNY Binghamton first. Um, oh, you did? Okay. I didn't know that. Okay. It, it, we, we we called it the uh, the Ivy of the Sunys, which I thought was so elitist <laughs> and also ridiculous at the same time. It's just the wrong <laughs> index to use. But look, it was the cheapest school I could get into. Um, and uh, it was a good school. Um, I completely botched the whole college application process partly because I had a guidance council. I don't know, look, stepping back for a second, Bronx science, great school, special school, literally specialized, right? I mean, this is the... look, we had textbooks falling apart, you know, the classrooms were falling apart, uh, I sit in chairs, that sometimes they'd break in the middle. So look, there's good things about the school, you know, Nobel laureates in the alumni, it's all these wonderful things, Some some wonderful teachers. But still, there were major problems. And one of the problems we had, from my perspective, guidance was a mess back then. So what went really well for me was that I got a mentor, which I actually got serendipitously through the stock club after school. And, um, and the reason I was even attending the stock club or join the stock club was because my family went bankrupt at the beginning of high school. Uh, and uh, I, I knew that when I finished my education, I wanted to have money. And I wanted to have a job that was going to give me financial stability. And I just didn't want to worry about money the way that my family worried about money many times. And so I didn't know anything about what that meant. I didn't know how, I didn't know anything about jobs at all. I didn't know what kind of jobs were out there, but I knew that living in New York city, I knew there was wall street. I thought hey, i I'll, I'll be a stockbroker or something. Yeah. So I joined the stock club and then got a mentor through that. And he helped me apply to college and, um, and, navigate that process a bit. And I went to SUNY Binghamton and um, I got another mentor when I was at Bing who helped me um, learn a little bit more. And then I went to NYU Stern um, where I ended up getting my undergraduate degree in finance. Um, I did an internship at an investment bank after junior year and thought, maybe I don't need that much money that badly. I'm I'm willing to like, I'm looking for financial stability. I'm looking to not worry about money. I'm not sure I'm cut out for that. Um, And so I ended up starting my career as a consultant at McKinsey and company instead, (laughs) which which isn't a walk in the park either from a hours per week perspective. No, it's true. But look, you know, there are extremes and I pulled back from one. So I feel, I feel all right with that one uh I, I think it's fascinating and it's really a, a testament to the
0: people in our lives that unofficially help us with nothing to really to gain other than the goodness of their hearts and paying it forward and a number of different reasons
1: um and and we'll revisit I like, that i feel like it's a gift to give like it's a gift to be able to give it feels so good when you give it, it
0: does and we'll, we'll touch upon it when we talk about what you're doing now but um it's never about the money. It's never about financial means to give. And in fact, I will argue, and, and um, would love to get your take on it. I, I would say that time and energy and passion and love and kindness um, can never, actually those things are far, far superior than a, a check of any any amount, or um, well maybe not any amount, but um, a, a financial impact gift. Um, so let's talk about your years in consulting. Um, because yeah. right, because after that you went on to start a, a you know a nonprofit that helps career advising. Um, what did you learn there? And you were there a while. Um, you were not a, a two and out. You were there a little while to get multiple promotions, and you were in management and you yeah. led teams and you did all that. Um, what did you learn from that experience? And what did you um, felt that you wanted to do outside of that? Because if people don't know working where you did at McKinsey is a ticket to go do anything. Uh, particularly, uh, the exits are full of. Well, that's what they say. Um,
1: what they say. And it's, it's, it's You could do a could, lot. You could definitely.
0: And, do and a there's lot. been a lot of, yeah, test cases um, to to prove that hypothesis. Um, but even from a financial perspective, there are ways to exit from yeah. there to a more lucrative path with with better life balance, what have you. Um, yeah. But curious to learn about the things that you learned um, during the five years at McKinsey, and um, and, and talk to me about that.
1: Yeah. Well, so I guess the first thing is, you know, I went in wanting to do finance, wanting the job. I wanted to do consulting. I got to just acknowledge right off the bat. I mean, I got financial stability. I was living in, in Manhattan. I was making, I can't remember how I was 60 something, $67,000 a year or something straight out of college. I was like, I had my grandfather in California who spent his whole life as a butcher Um, after the military. He was like, you give, Like they pay for your entire health insurance? Like that's an am- he was just so impressed, right? And so I really felt like, okay, I was okay. I made it. Um, and so the bare essentials, you know, just wonderful. Um, it, was, it was prestigious. You had like this big, you know, fancy address and Park Avenue and the whole thing. Um, <laughs> I got a lot of core business skills for sure. Absolutely. The consulting, professional services consulting, training – it's excellent. Uh, you don't learn everything, but you learn a lot of really valuable stuff that's otherwise very hard to learn. Um, and um, I gained a lot of finance knowledge. I gained a lot of understanding of what happens in boardrooms. I sat in boardrooms at a ridiculously young age. Um, no real business being there, <laughs> but um, but did you know? Did my best and rose up through the ranks as you said. Um, I think I was there for six years at the time I left. Um, it was time to, to basically make a, a go or no go decision on whether I wanted to be a partner mm-hmm. because it's a multi-year process. When you say you want to be a partner at the firm, you have to like, you have to basically right. Right, put together a platform for your election. You have to rally your support base and you don't just get partner and then bounce and screw everybody who just stumped for you. Right. You had, you're, you're, you're in for a very long time. So right. I went pretty far. Um, and, um, and I had a great experience. I would say, I re- personally, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, um, I, I felt like I met amazing people. Um, it was very intellectually stimulating. Um, I felt that one of the things that I was missing personally at McKinsey was, uh, or in consulting in general, was I didn't feel like I was that driven by the purpose. I think when I went into it, I thought of the purpose of business and the purpose of, of capitalism being truly a noble thing that would benefit all. And I think over time, personally, I began to feel like it wasn't enough for me. I didn't believe that. I guess I sort of didn't believe enough in the the, the, the beautiful system. Um, and I wasn't seeing that I was getting enough enjoyment out of, uh, 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 of the results of it. And what I started to do is I spent a lot of my spare time volunteering. I was mentoring youth. Mm. Um, I was working in Volunteering my time with nonprofits and my favorite projects in consulting were projects for foundations mm. or advising nonprofits. So when I wanted to leave McKinsey, I decided I didn't want to be a partner. It wasn't the life for me. Um, I knew that I wanted to take my real what I was really enjoying the most, which is which is giving back and helping young people prepare for careers, and I wanted to really focus on on that. Um, so that's kind of that's what that's what took me out of it. Very
0: cool. Um, What we glossed over was the two years that you spent in Asia at McKinsey. Um, McKinsey, obviously a big, big global firm. You you can put an office. Yeah. You you can find a McKinsey office in any major city anywhere. Um, How did that opportunity come about? You obviously re-upped to stay an additional year. It sounds like or it looks like. Um, How did you end up there and why'd you stay?
1: God, I got so lucky. I got so lucky. Um, It was a time uh, 2000 2000. I was in I was in China from 2007 to 2009, and a couple of very important things about this. Um, one is I got I got the opportunity to go there with the company largely as a fluke. They needed somebody who was very hardcore in financial knowledge. I had it. I was interested in going. I had a lot of friends who were thinking about moving to China. It was a safe move for me to do. My Chinese was nearly non-existent. I mean, I think it was actually non-existent. Um, So it was a wild gamble to try to even go for it. And I convinced a couple of people there that, um, that it was worth it for them to accept somebody who didn't speak Chinese, but who was going to try their best to learn, um, to, to bring a very specific technical knowledge to their, to, to, to the region. Um, so I got, I got the opportunity to go, but let's look at the years, 2007, 2009, encompasses two major, major things in the region. One of them is the global recession, which is a big deal. Um, And the second one is the Beijing Olympics, which was also an enormous coming of age party for the country. Um, And I was there to witness those. And Mm -hmm. um, during the the financial uh, crisis and the resulting recession in the US, um, in China, it was a very different feeling. For those who weren't there at the time, it was scary to think of growth slowing, but we weren't thinking about contraction. Um, So it was like, people were saying, like, what happens when China might only grow at 4%? And, you know, that was the sort of, we're preparing for the down case, right, Mm -hmm. of that. And it's very, it's very different from what I was hearing from my colleagues in the US. Um, And I think for folks who are looking at a recession now, perhaps who haven't experienced one as an adult before, um, it could be an extremely difficult time uh, for a lot of people, and um, and that was my sort of exp- my my time in China brought me through one of those. And I think mm-hmm. one of the just luckiest, least bad of all the bad options ways, right. um, which is to experience it in China. So after
0: that, you uh, got a promotion and went back to the Boston, or went to the Boston office, um, where while you were. Still working at McKinsey, I believe. Um, You got involved, or slightly around the time you were leaving there. um, I guess when you started Career Village, um, you were involved with the the TEDx conference there locally in Cambridge. Yeah, that's right. Um,
1: TEDx Cambridge. Your research is excellent. I don't know how you got. I did not give you all this deep bio.
0: You know, there's a really good page called LinkedIn, and uh, (laughs) it gives
1: it's uh, it's all on there. Um, Being modest. I did. I got, I got hooked up. I got pulled into the TEDx community back in 2009, I think. Um, and, and partly that happened because when I moved to Boston, which I should note was like a strange thing as a New Yorker is like a, avowed New Yorker. <laughs> I'm like, I'm moving to Boston, but it's good. So I moved to Boston. I knew one thing I wanted to, to, um, to sort of experience was all the this amazing science and just all the academic power up in Boston. Um, my wife who i met at mckinsey uh was getting a phd at harvard and um some of her some of her classmates were um were ted fellows and really into mm. ted and when the tedx program launched they immediately applied to run tedx cambridge uh, um and got the license for the tedx cambridge name which is the way that work the program yeah. works great apologies to cambridge uk uh uh, uh, the Cambridge name ended up going to Massachusetts. But anyway, um, I joined, I, I, I attended one and I just changed everything for me. It was a time when I was, I, I felt like I was ready to leave McKinsey. And what I saw at Ted at the time was just a bunch of people who were very passionate about their work in a way that I didn't feel that I was, I, I could never imagine myself getting up on a stage under any conditions to like give, a, a, to share, share an idea that on what I was doing on a day-to-day basis. Um, and i just i was so inspired by people's enthusiasm for their work and um and that actually i if i have to be honest i actually think is part of what it helped inspire me to think beyond the path that i was on the prescribed path to success and to say i'm seeing all these people who are <laughs> amazingly excited about things that they're not my thing but but I just, I love the passion they have for it. Um, and I, there's some things I care a lot about too, and I'm not working on them. Um, and, um, so partly because partly in like homage to that, I, I actually joined the TEDx Cambridge team and became the lead curator for a while, uh, for that team, just trying to find people who are passionate about their work and help them spread the ideas. Um, but Ted, Ted changed over time and TEDx changed over time. Um, and when I moved here out here to California, um, the TEDx Cambridge community um, went to another curator and uh, has continued to grow a lot, but um, it, it did play a, a very interesting role for me uh, at that time in my life.
0: I, I think you answered a question I, I was going to ask, which was you know, when you're in and around the community of storytelling, where everybody, uh, there's so much on the line, it seems, even though it's just two, you know, a human telling a story. In those 12 minutes you're supposed to change not only the world but your world and um yeah. you know, the day that we're yeah we're, we're recording this on may 4th and um today's episode that we aired was from Fuke tran who wrote a book called saigon but if you roll it back his real inspiration point was the first time he stood on a tedx stage up in maine and and so um you know the power of that uh, power of any stage and to have the guts or the confidence or the courage to go up there and share his story and then let the world just come to you. And then the change that I think is, is, is fascinating. Um, was there a particular speech or a person that you met through the process that got you to really change your paradigm on what you wanted to do with your life and what you wanted to be known for?
1: You know, I, I'll, I'll share a couple. So I guess, so let's go back to the TEDx Cambridge that I attended just as an attendee mm-hmm. before I joined the team. I remember there was so, one, tons of wonderful speeches. I still remember many of them, but two really blew my mind. So one was um, Kenji Lopez-Alt. Kenji Lopez? Oh man. I messed up Kenji's last name. I'm a huge, huge admirer of this guy. Sorry, Kenji. Um, but uh, he was working at Serious Eats at the time as a writer and came up to Cambridge and gave a speech talking about um, DIY sous vide. And he like brought up a uh, like a a, a a beer cooler and talked about how you can like do see sous vide at home. This is before like sous vide became like, yeah. a I don't know, like a big a marketing. Thing. There, there were no, you couldn't buy like a sous vide cooker for your house. Okay, you had to kind of make it yourself. But He talked about like the benefits. Look, sure, I like to cook or whatever, but this guy was just so passionate about it and I was inspired by that. And this, the second person that comes to mind for me, Chandler Burr. Who at the time was the New York Times critic of sense. Like smells. He would criticize like perfumes and things. Oh. And I didn't know this was a thing. But Chandler Burr's description of of smells, of sense, was c- kind of amazing. He was poetic and how he spoke about the way things smell. He talked about pink peppercorns and, you know, it's such a, and I'm not even going to try it. Like just, but just, I was just inspired by his passion for smells. I never thought about things you smell like in, he described a smell as a single brilliant point of light. Hmm. Look, I didn't, I didn't smell any light, but the point was that he was just so into it. I was blown away that somebody could be so into smells. Um, and that's the one i attended but later on as a one of my jobs as lead curator at some point was to coach the speakers and mm. there i learned a totally different thing which is, especially when you're working with academics who are then going to go from the way right. they normally present to the ted format which sometimes is 12 minutes sometimes it's 18 and sometimes i go to them and i say look your speech it's perfect seven minute or six minute speech if you go too long with your idea it actually makes it worse. Um, hmm. You should, you should nail the idea, you should back it up. And then you should stop and drop the mic. Because that'll actually be more remember more memorable, if you do it that way. than if you, you know, than if you try to drag it out, oh, and three more things, right, uh, and try to drag it out. But what I what I learned from sort of working with them, and helping them go from their their, their normal mo into this, this other sort of the TED stage, um, just how, how much you have to simplify things and um, and and how hard it is to um, craft a communication with a very specific message you need to, like with, with great intent toward a very specific message. Um, it was a huge amount of fun. Uh, I was really inspired by a lot of them. Manolis Kellis, I remember Manolis Kellis, this amazing, brilliant professor at MIT. And Manolis and I, we spent a lot of time together. Um, he knows everything and anything about DNA and RNA and the all this. Like he was throwing terms at me, it was incredibly difficult for me to follow. But the the core ideas and the core inspira- inspirational science of it was so wonderful. Uh-huh. Um, And so, just a lot of the time was spent just trying to, frankly, dumb it down um, for for the rest of us. So,
0: from early childhood to 2011, you having navigated through your, your childhood, spending, uh, splitting your time between both coasts and then both parents, um, that the fun experience at high school was for us through NYU and learning how to synthesize information, be in a room with very, very smart people in multiple cities and, and client projects all over the world. What led to the decision that you wanted to do something that many would consider noble, but also kind of insane because starting a nonprofit with that, that helps underprivileged students is not on the expected list of what does a McKinsey engagement manager yeah, retired to do?
1: Yeah, no, it's not. Um, so I think, I think, I, I think I've sort of, you know, I've sort of shared some of the kind of core motivations. I was I had a mentor, so I, I recognized how lucky I was. You know, I was, I was enjoying volunteering. I was ready to leave consulting. Um, cause I saw that my passion lied elsewhere. I kind of shared all those things, but I, there is one thing I haven't shared, which I'm going to choose to, to, co-opt your question into answering or addressing. Um, which is, I had the privilege to be able to because I had worked at McKinsey for six years because I had saved a tremendous amount of money from that. Um, I was able to take a huge financial risk where I literally had a two year runway and could actually go without compensation for a couple of years to do something that I felt passionate about. That's an enormous privilege. And um, I see a lot of nonprofits get started. Many of them succeed. Some of them don't. But every single time somebody starts a nonprofit, they dig really deep personally. And some of them have the ability, the privilege to be able to just do that. And some of them uh, struggle hugely. I have friends who started nonprofits who, who like literally rice. was like their, their staple, you know, for, for every meal, Um, for like for months before things started to work out or they had to move on. Um, So I had that privilege. Um, I really want to acknowledge it. It's a, crazy thing to do in many ways, but it's everybody who does it's doing it for such wonderful reasons. Um, I don't think it should have to be that hard to devote yourself to a cause. Um, or that you should have to, you should definitely should not have to have saved up years of, 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 of runway to do that. But, um, but it's so hard to, to to get support for early stage nonprofit and raise money for it. And, um, It's kind of, it's unfortunate, but I think it's, 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 it's a part of the the system we have now.
0: I think so. And, and hopefully, um, what we're going through now in, in the early part of 2020 will help, uh, give some people a little bit more perspective and, and decision-making and the power to, um, put, put people in power that can hopefully facilitate more creations without worrying about, um, finances or security, um. You started, so for for people who are not familiar with Career Village, um, give us the vision before you started of what you wanted it to be, and
1: what was it actually like in its earlier years? So the vision of Career Village has kind of always been that we would create an online community where students could get career advice that would help them prepare for careers. Um, And what I recognized was that having a mentor is incredibly valuable. We don't have nearly enough mentors all the students who need it um and so most students either you got a mentor or you were you got put into a very wonderful high touch job training program which wonderful like Europe, up it's all the great programs that are out there or you got nothing and there didn't seem to be much in between um and so the vision was like well there are some things I can't. I can't do everything a mentor can do for you, but right. there are some things that a mentor can give you: um, the knowledge and encouragement. They believe in you, and the self-efficacy, and all that. You know, that we could do that. We could do those things at huge scale. Um, right. And so that's the idea: is like, let's try to make sure that nobody goes without. Um, if I can't give everybody a mentor, at least I can get you the answers to your questions. Uh, I can get you encouragement. Um, and uh, and the way that I experimented with a lot of things. But the way ultimately, um, really zeroed in on delivering that and and what career village has become is, um, is is first and foremost, it's a very, very large career q&a site. Um, Mm -hmm. We did not invent the q&a site, Stack Overflow and Quora and all those others preceded us but, um, but we're a very good q&a for this particular purpose, which is students who have some question or uncertainty, have either a really detailed question or a very, very loosely held question. It's all Mm -hmm. fine. We post it up. And then we've passed those questions out to our volunteer pool. um, And they'll bring in the answers. Um, At the very beginning, the humble day, the beginnings, it was like four classrooms in New York, uh, and me literally emailing friends to get answers, post like emailing you and other friends to get the questions answered. Um, but now it's significantly bigger. Now we've served career advice to over four and a half million people, uh, in 190 wow. countries. And we have about at this point, 58, 59,000 volunteers, um, wow. around the world. First of all, congrats. Those are crazy numbers.
0: Um, in, in hindsight, looking crazy. back at it nine years, I, I bet, you know, it's holy crap. I can't be, We, we, be, we did all that. Um, you know, you, you started the, the organization um, in Boston and ended up moving not for Career Village, but just ended up moving to Silicon Valley where the buzzword, the, the ultimate goal is scale and, you know, big, 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 right? Just astronomical growth, which I think True. Um, you've achieved from a nonprofit perspective. Um, share with the lesson on why you decided to take this venture as a nonprofit where you could have easily taken a for-profit method brought in some investors. You had a crazy network um, through all your experiences and decided to monetize on this somehow and, and made it a little bit easier on you personally too, financially. Um, why nonprofit versus a for-profit
1: venture? It was it was basically a short-term versus long-term uh, prioritization. Um, I think if I was prioritizing exclusively in the short run, um, I might have thought more about being a, uh, a for-profit and raising venture and trying to find a monetization strategy but my real core purpose was to get back. I was thinking very long-term. Um, to be fair, I didn't see this being a multi-billion dollar valuation company or I didn't know what it looked like. And I think it, some folks may be surprised hear me say well, so the long-term, the long-term <laughs> privatization would lend itself toward being a nonprofit. But the reason I think that makes sense is that if you start a for-profit company with a social good purpose, and you don't and you and you plan to take venture and you don't have a path to becoming mm-hmm. a multibillion, you know, to being a unicorn company. You're going to lose control of your company at some point. I'm not guaranteeing it. I'm just saying it's very possible. You cannot yep. guarantee that you're going to retain control of that organization and keep that company on with the purpose that you are are hoping it has. Sure. Um, you might get fired by your investors. Um, other things might come up. You just might find yourself one day having to do your utmost to retain control or to just like, you know, make a profit um, and yeah. really have that sort of supersede your, your real, your initial social purpose. So I saw being a nonprofit as being sort of say for long term play. Um, this institution may not be a unicorn valuation organization ever, but this, this mission is evergreen. You know, let's, let's build a career ready generation like it's evergreen. We're always going to need that. Let's enshrine that in in the bylaws. Let's let's actually write the mission down and let's force the board to work toward that mission. And that's what you do when you say to the state, I give up the equity. It belongs to the people. We're a nonprofit now. But in exchange, we are working on this mission and only this mission. Um, that's kind of the that's, that's, that's how, that's how we made the choice in the
0: end. No, I, I think it's noble, man. And, and I've said this to you in person, so I'm not, you know, trying to, trying to hype you up. Just we, we have a can or a microphone in front of us. I think it's one of the coolest things that I've seen my personal friends do, which is to give up what could have been, what likely was a guaranteed path to a very lucrative and uh, traditionally safe career. Um, I, I think you and I can remind. also talk about, Oh, sure. <laughs> um, <Definitely>. of course, <laughs> of course. Um, you know, I, I think you and I can talk on a different conversation about uh, the things that we learned in consulting that we never wish we had learned, but boy, are we glad we did because now now we're pursuing things that are, are more meaningful to the both of us. In in the nine years that you've run Career Village, you've obviously had some ups, some downs, some troubling sure. days. Of um, you're, you're creating in essence a marketplace for students who desperately want guidance, and yeah. then convincing adults to say, "Hey, your time is worth," um, you know sitting down and and opening up your browser and and typing away meaningful answers. Um, how do you quality control that process to make sure that through the millions of questions that have now been answered, that there's, uh, I don't know, concerning activity that goes on between or just bad advice. Do you get to judge what bad advice is on the platform?
1: I get to judge what advice is inappropriate for the platform. Um, but, uh, but we don't sort of like say oh, this advice is uh, 20% better than that advice or anything like that, but, <laughs> but to, to get to, to get to the question you're initially, initially posing, which is a good one. Um, we got to read everything. So we have, we have team members who read everything, um, as it's coming through. And we also have an amazing unsung heroes group of volunteers who are the site mods and the mods, mm. they review everything too. So, um, and they're unbelievably fast. They're so, so, so generous. They're such generous people. And they're like, they're really behind the scenes. Um, well, we review everything. Got to make sure it's appropriate. Uh, we try to do coaching in the application where we can just to help people bring their advice to the next level. Um, but like, I think part of the reason a QA and a is really valuable is as long as you have multiple answers per question, create some natural competition to try to give the best, you know, be the most helpful. And... Um, if we manage supply and demand well, which we do, and make sure there's always a lot of supply, um, you know, you don't need every single answer to, you don't need somebody, you don't have to sit there for an hour and a half, like just crafting every <laughs> punctuation. Like, you know, you could be yeah. helpful. Somebody else can bring in another part of the perspective, and then somebody else can bring in another one, and somebody else might might go spend an hour and a half and try to write some big treaties on, you know, your question. But, um, <laughs> but you can, you can still have an impact uh, yeah. and still be helpful. If you got an hour and a half, it's great. If you got five minutes, that's fine too. Answer from yeah. your perspective, be encouraging um, and uh, cite your source. You know, you got to say I is hand experience or I am my yeah. heart for my sister or whatever, but, um, but you can have, you know, you can, you can have an effect and we, and we keep an eye. We have to keep an eye. I think it's the
0: lessons that I've learned, unfortunately, a little bit later in life when in, and I always preface this now every time I get a talk or young
1: guys. you know, I mean, we're, we're literally incredibly both, old now. <laughs>
0: Jared, we're we're literally both thirty six. Um, the thing that became clear to me was that when you ask for advice, you have to do both at the same time, which seems like two opposite ends of binaryism, but. You have to listen to everything that they tell you, but you also have to be willing to listen to nothing that they tell you because yeah. you have to appreciate the fact that it is one person's personal story sure. or opinion. And I think when we talk to students, they're so hungry for information and um, particularly who um, students who might have to go to a couriervillage.org to ask the question because they don't have people in their community, in their family, in their neighborhood who can answer those questions, right? So your yeah. customer base on the student side are questions who – don't have dads who belong to the country club and fraternity brothers from way back when. And then that's, we're trying to bridge. Ultimately, you're trying to bridge the achievement gap, right? And then you are plugging a hole in the space of schools schools are not doing this. Um, The families can't do it. The committee doesn't know even what questions to ask. And so um, this is a safe space, somewhat anonymous in a forum format to ask the dumb questions that your parents can't answer for you. So I, I think what you've created is is super super cool. Um, tell me the coolest story you've ever gotten from a student who was on your platform the past nine years.
1: There's so many. You know, I, I think there's a one of the things I love about my job is that I get to see all the different ways that people are benefit from 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 the platform. Um, so it just takes so many flavors, and I think one of the you know, you hear from like, a. a, a I hear from a lot of, of of students who turn to Career Village because they, it's really urgent for them that they find a path to financial stability, right? They, need, they know when they finish their education, they need a job, just like I did when I was a kid. And so I see the corollary. And for them, it might be different. They're not a, in New York City trying to be a Whatever a stockbroker is, right? But they're they're in Mississippi. They want to be a nurse because she's, you know, this young girl is caring for her brother and sister who are ill, and her mother uh, who's out of work, and her father who has a part time job, and she's on career village because she's trying to get into nursing school and she wants to figure out how to how to navigate that path. Um, So I love to hear the ways in which we're a valuable resource for students who 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 are experiencing the same thing that I experienced when I was a kid. It's heartbreaking, and it's also like that if it, 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 it feels purposeful, um, I think my favorite stories, though, are like stories from students who started off with us in high school. And now that we mm. are a nine year old community, we have some students who started in high school and have actually gone through some or all of college with us. Um, and they've starting to get jobs. And that's amazing. So you know, we have students who are now engineers at tech companies. And who found out that they actually, like the programming wasn't just a thing other people did, but something they could actually learn and figured out how to go about doing that on Career Village starting like seven years ago. Um, Or students who, you know, like I I love hearing from students who say, this is this, this right here, this person, this person's the person I want to be when I grow up. Um, So I had, you know, students who say to me that they, They'll, they'll be looking through the profiles of the people who give them advice, and then they'll see somebody, and we're doing an interview or something, or we're sitting with them, and they'll say, like, I think this is the first time I've ever, like, f- personally found, like, an actual person who is doing my dream, like, who I want to be when I grow up. That's her. Um, and uh, I love those moments, um, for sure. We, I have to acknowledge, like, we also get a lot of stories of heartbreak, because people face really difficult times, um, and sometimes sometimes they, they share those on Career Village as they're looking for help. Um, and we've actually gotten a few more of those recently. A lot of people are, are being hugely affected by COVID-19, training programs getting shut down, just, like, all of a sudden, not sure they actually can graduate on time, because they've been struggling with the online courses, um, internships getting canceled. Um, people who've had job offers rescinded, and just a lot of challenges that come with any recession. But this one is a weird one. This is a strange type of beast. And it's really affecting a lot of people. And so we've got a lot of people who need a lot of help right now. Um, and uh, that's a real part of my job too, is just kind of trying to be there for people who are facing so much challenge.
0: Um, to the best of your, uh, observation and knowing, or I guess, knowledge of both sides of the equation, how important is representation in the adult mix? Let's say, I guess this would be the supply side in your equation. Yeah. Um, is there a correlation between what the students look like and who answers their questions? because I think content is so critical when you help somebody but context yeah. is even more and I don't know if that comes through in a QA format
1: it's super it's super important there are times when I think that the QA touches upon the shared context and understanding and there are times when I feel like the question doesn't quite share what some of the what the context is around it or the volunteer doesn't quite share some of their sort of biases mm-hmm. going in but it's a mixed bag I think Well, we but let me just start with this what we hear from students is that it matters um and so recruiting a diverse volunteer pool is important to us Um, we also started to do things like we created groups within career village which is a feature you can use to um explicitly opt into um Mm -hmm. you know getting advice from or giving advice to uh regarding like a specific demographic and that's been helpful but um very um, cool but but diversity in, in the volunteer pool it's really important. Um, so it's part of my staff's te- job is to try to make sure we are doing our best by diversity in the, in the volunteer pool.
0: I think that's critically important. Obviously, um, we're on a podcast that specifically focuses on Asian American storytelling because the lack of role models, the lack of mentors who look like us, who actively said, hey, Jared, hey, Jerry, come here, let me buy you coffee, let me buy you lunch, let me show you, or at least share with you my story. And so Maybe it's an introduction. Maybe it's a story of don't make the mistake I did. Um, we didn't have that in high school. And maybe the opportunities were there. Maybe we just didn't see it. Um, there, there were good people around us and in our communities. And and then so this is not a, you know, it was so bad back then. Um, we we're obviously privileged in our own way of having gone to the right schools and the right, you know, uh, opportunities. But um, when I talk to students too, I, part of the reason, the big motivation for me to start this now was... Um, even 20 years after we went to high school, students still felt um, with all the privilege that they have, with all the access that they have with the internet, that they weren't getting, they weren't seeing the people that look like them doing the things that they wanted to do. Um, But the different thing now, 20 years later, is that here are people who look like me and you doing these things. And now it's just a matter of, let's get a mic in front of them, let's put a camera on them, and let's give them a platform to share their stories because- when somebody finds you via Career Village or even on LinkedIn, they don't know 90% of the stuff we just talked about. And, and the yeah. context there of, holy crap, um, I went through that same thing or I want to go through that same thing is is critically important. And I think it's just ultimately to make people feel, especially especially students who are going through independent of identity issues, just so much stuff of expectation and um, competition and, and feeling less than and achieve, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm achieving enough. And um, ultimately it is to make people feel like they're not alone because nobody's ever alone, whatever you're going through, somebody else is going through it. Um, and so you mentioned it earlier, but right now during COVID-19 times, um, things are wonky to, to, for lack of a better term. Um, well said. It's, it's weird and it's nobody's fault. Um, particularly when it comes to job prospects uh, businesses are doing what they do which is potentially to shut down things that are not essential to their own survival or to cut back on spending some money and and so um and you know we were in very very good times for a few years leading into this so the the relative impact might even seem more drastic um yeah What's the general sense you're getting from the student population now? Is there optimism? Is there, hey, this is just a seasonal thing and we'll get back to normal? And for, for students for whom really that real pressure of I need to make money now or um, everything I work for just seems to have disappeared overnight and therefore I don't even know what my identity is anymore. You said you heard, you've been hearing some challenging stories from your students what is a very smart and human and kind way that you've seen
1: volunteers and your staff react to those messages? Just a whole lot of empathy, a whole lot of caring, a lot of belief and encouragement is what I'm, what I'm inspired by the most when I'm looking at what's happening right now on the platform, Um, from the volunteer side, at least uh, it is tragic in many cases. And, I I use that word in the sense that through no fault of your own, you're going to have a tough time. Um, And that's not the case for everybody, but for some and for many, uh, it's going to be harder. You've had some plans that are not going to work out the way you had hoped. Um, I'm just thankful that they're not going through it alone, that we are there to... Give alternatives. Talk about Plan Bs. Sometimes just say, "Look, your your Plan A is still good. You're you're fine. You're fine. You keep keep going. It's going to be okay." Um, or or whatever the case may be, because you got to meet everybody where they are, right? But um. Yeah. But, you know, I've said to our staff, and I've said to the volunteers I've spoken with, uh, now is a time when we got to be better than we've ever been as support community. Um, no student should go on career village and ask a question and not, and have to wait for a long time to get an answer. Like we need to be giving more answers faster with more understanding and empathy and care and higher quality and more attention to detail and all that stuff than we've ever done before. Um, so I'm happy that's what's happening, but, but I think um, there's no silver bullets for this. Uh, if you can wait on things, that's going to be a huge asset to have that flexibility. If you can't, you're going to need fallback options. And that's just the reality. And so I think that's what people are doing. Um, it, it, we don't know how long this is going to last. Uh, we don't know when hiring will start to resume in earnest way again, for most occupations, it could be relatively quick, it could be prolonged. Um, so you know, if you're graduating within the next 24 months, uh, or the next 12 months, uh, or the next four years, it's going to be a different implication, you know, you might not even notice versus right. you might actually be affected. Um, so for those who are graduating literally this month, um, I'm sure it's on top of their mind for sure. But um, sorry, I mean there's no there's no silver bullet answer. But um, but look, I think we just need to for anybody listening who's not a, a student, right? Anybody who's just a just a citizen, reach out, contact students, be proactive. They may not always reach out to you right right it's a scary time um they don't have time to go through every single person in their rolodex and just think i wonder if they would <laughs> accept if i were to but, but right. let's also note it's scary right like as a, as a teenager as a teenager let's just take teenagers for a moment as a teenager just going to adults is scary and asking for right. anything can be intimidating it takes a little we get teenagers all the time we're like you know we're like hey good good idea to write a thank you note. They're like, I don't really know what to say. And we're like, it's okay, just say thank you. So sometimes you just need to know the words. And so, you know, if you as an adult know a young person reaching out proactively, seeing how they're doing, it's I'll just give you the words right now. It's, hey, how you doing? That's it. Go send that out to your teenagers you know, uh, or the young adults who are finishing education soon, and and check in with them, um, because they might need your help right now.
0: And if you don't have anybody like that in your life, well, you probably do. CareerVillage.org. <laughs> That's exactly where I would go. <laughs> go to CareerVillage.org, um, sign up. Look, you, you might spend 10 minutes or five minutes leaving an answer to a question that just seems so common sense to you. And if you are listening to this, um, you are in my social network or you know somebody that I know, Um, As Jared did earlier, let's admit to our giant bucket of privilege that we sometimes are so blinded by. Um, This is not to make light of the tough, challenging situations that some of you may be going through right now, Um, but this means that you have a cell phone, some time, maybe the internet, and the availability of time and energy to seek out stories that resonate with you. Um, I fully understand that talking about identity and telling Asian American stories is not at the bottom of the hierarchy of needs pyramid. This is not a basic survival thing. We are here because we want to better ourselves and to get to that point where we want to be our best selves. And so if you are listening to this, I urge you, um, uh, take a moment, uh, careervillage.org. There's many, many ways to help. One is you physically going in there and answering questions. Uh, Two is to make a small personal contribution, whatever you are comfortable with. Um, Jared's two-year runway ran out seven years ago, so he is <laughs> self, self-funding this through the generosity of its volunteer base, corporate partners, other uh, people who see the value in changing literally millions of lives at scale. Um, and if you work for a large company and you are fortunate enough to work for a large company with a giving budget, with a community engagement budget, or, um, Maybe you used to go build houses or go, um, you know, feed uh, the less fortunate in your own town for a corporate volunteer day. And obviously now those things are not possible. Um, Share Courier Village with your HR coordinator or whoever community development, community relations person is. Um, You know, we used to make fun of the term keyboard warrior even two months ago. And now that's taken on a whole new meaning Uh, from the comfort and the safety of our home in front of our computers. We can do so much. And we're not just talking about telling other people to stay the F home and don't be an idiot. You can go and do a little bit more. And, and um, look, and here, here's one thing that I, a personal story that I will share. Um, sometimes I think we have, regardless of what life stage you're in, we are perpetually taught to never, fe- never we are perpetually um, taught to feel that we are never enough to dish out advice. To out any sort of perspective. Um, I get this a lot when I speak to college students and I challenge them and I say, hey, let's think back four years ago when you were in junior college, junior high school or high school. If you looked up to yourself now, would you not want advice from that person? And they go, yeah. I say, okay, cool. If you were in a high school, wouldn't you not have some things to say for your younger brother or sister who's in junior high school and say, hey, these are the things that I wish I had known because high school is a very challenging time? Look, I saw, I mean, you anybody with multiple kids has seen this. Your older kid will teach the younger kid starting the moment the second kid is born everything about life. And so, no, you don't need to be at a certain level. You don't need to have made certain amount of money or have a certain job title to then turn around and help the next person. The only thing you need to have is to be a damn human being and just know that your work matters. So wherever you are, um, and again, I I think in the conversation of privilege, it matters not what your job title is. It matters not where you went to school. It matters not what your paycheck says. Everybody's opinion matters because people are going to and from very different places in life. Um, If Yeah, there's so many things that I think I can share just to motivate everybody to say or start to feel that their opinion, their perspective matters. Because at the end of the end of it, it is just a perspective. It is an opinion. You're not trying to tell this student literally what to do every day for the next 10 years of their lives. That's not the intent. Trust
1: the student to have the judgment, to interpret your advice and all the other people's advice and come to a good decision for themselves because they have that judgment and they are able to do that.
0: So it's... you. Every everything matters, right? And this, the systems are in place so that if you give actual crappy advice, that you know the community will shut it down or not listen to you, or who knows? It's it's different for everybody, right? Um, when you're helping literally millions of students, how do you judge the middle? How do you come to a point where um, you speak to to the majority? Um, but yeah, thanks for what you're doing, man. I, I you know I've had the pleasure thanks, of right. swinging by your office and meeting your team members, and, and we've. Um, you know, exchange a lot of conversations over the years on um, how it's, I am amazed by what you've created. And, you know, for, for a lot of the slack that, um, you know, consultants get sometimes of of being tone deaf and literally blind to the world's woes and um, uh, to the, to the point that, you know, people like uh, Aran Dadas writes damn books about it and all, all the privilege that comes with it. It is really, really cool and amazing to see friends like you who then take all the experience and all the privilege and all the access and your giant Rolodex to go and and point it at something that is not only so good, but as you said, it is evergreen and and its true impacts will never, never really be realized because you might have changed the kid's life who will then go change others. And and that chain of goodness is um, you don't ever want to know what you don't want to know that there is a cap to it. Um yeah. when you well, when you put things in terms end. of a, it does not end, you know. If this were a for profit venture, we would talk about the next fundraising round, we would next talk about the next valuation, we would talk about the exit. When you're doing good human work, it is non-quantifiable, and that is the most beautiful thing because kindness is eternal and, and happiness is eternal. So um thank you, man. It is it is an honor to call you a friend. Um I don't go on Curve Village enough, I should um it's i mean heck if any of career village students are listening to this i'm serious man it's um if if any career village students are listening to this and you're like oh i've always wanted to start a podcast or learn a little thing about you know business school or whatever hit me up we'll talk um happy to help um i want to thank you for your time i know um all of us um parents particularly at, at home working from our homes now uh It is an extra layer of challenge. So uh, thanks to you and and, and your partner and your children for allowing us this time to have this conversation. Um, I want to end the conversation here uh, the same way that we end all of our shows. And it is a tip of the cap back to the name of the show, which is The Eurasian Americans. This show, um, while it is dedicated to my daughter and all of our children, has really been a show that's been 30 years in the making, 28 years in the making since I became an American. Yeah, And it is really based on the notion that I, these conversations, this exact conversation that you and I had, had we had this conversation to listen to 22 years ago in high school, would our lives have turned out any different? Not complaining about the way it has turned out, because I think it's wonderful, but how many missed opportunities are there? Um, You know, so I wanted to create this conversation, this series of conversations to really try to fill the gap of the things that I wish we had and uh, based on the conversation that I had with young folks and um, try to be there for the conversations that they want to have. So help us finish out the show, Um, write a letter to the community, say whatever it is in your heart and finish out the letter, Dear Asian Americans.
1: I say, Dear Asian Americans, let's not forget that identity is something we control and we get to decide. When people bring us their ideas of what our identity ought to be, you can do whatever you want with that. You can accept it. You can reject it. You can redefine it. You could be it right now. You can put it away later and put on something else if you want. And so you're always in control. And you have to understand as well that people sometimes will act upon their impression of what they think your identity should be. And that's their problem. We have to do our best to insulate ourselves from negative ramifications of that. But you're still in control of how you think about yourself. And that's what I tell my daughter and my son.
0: Thanks, man. Um, Given all that's going on, uh, even in highly densely Asian populated areas, like where you live and where I live, we unfortunately hear so much negativity and just frightening stories of, I can't believe somebody said that. I can't believe somebody actually did that. Um, you know, fear brings out a completely different side of humanity that sometimes we don't want to see. Um, but you're right. Anything that happens to us is never a reflection of who we are. It is everything about the other person who is dispensing that hate and the ugliness. So be proud of who you are. Um, whatever generation you are, whatever wherever home is for you, And whatever language you speak, when you want to yell at the idiot on the road, um, which they say is your true mother tongue, be proud of who you are and, and know that somewhere in the world, there's an exact replica of you going through the same thing. That person might be a little bit older than you or a little bit younger than you, but there have been billions of people who live on this earth. Therefore, I can guarantee you that whatever you think you're going through, that you feel so alone. Somebody has gone through it. Somebody is going through it. And you then later sharing that story of how it's impacted you will then go on to change countless lives. So keep sharing your stories. Um, Go on careervillage.org. Share your answers. Share your life experiences. So thanks, man. This has been a lot of fun. Um, Thank you, Jerry. No, it's it's my pleasure, man. Look, I... um, We'll do it soon, uh, but a lot of people have asked me. This is now the not the release, but the recording forty third, forty fourth episode, and they're like, "What the hell's your story, dude? How come we never get to hear from you?" <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I provide a little bit of commentary here and there, but uh, this has been the funnest thing I've ever done in my life. I get to sit here and I get to ask questions and, and learn um, and and connect with people who uh, have volunteered to come on a public platform and share their intimate stories. Uh, sometimes they stories that they've never told anybody else. So I I get to have a very, very fun job and um, to get heartwarming messages from listeners and and friends alike about how this uh, little podcast has impacted their lives in a very, very short amount of time in the past two months has been uh, one of the coolest things that I've ever done. I can't imagine what this little show will look like in nine years in the time that you've built Career Village 2. Um, So thank you. To to, to to bet to better days when, when we can celebrate in person but in the meantime everybody, go to careervillage.org uh, let, let them know that Jared sent you maybe uh, they'll, they'll listen to your advice a little bit more and if you're a student, go on and and ask ask away. Whatever the craziest, most detailed specific I don't think there's anybody who can answer this question in the world. There's somebody out there. We'll find that person for you. And hopefully we'll we'll help you make sense of uh, some of the unknowns and some of the challenges that you're feeling. So thanks, man. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Jared. What a great guy. Um, I've really had so much fun sharing my conversation with him. And though we've had some periods of time post high school where we've lost touch for a number of years, um, the last few years we've been really lucky to reconnect. Had a chance to visit him at his office in Palo Alto meet his team, and really understand what it is that drives him to continue to do this tireless work. Um, Again, if you have not had a chance to do so, visit the website at careervillage.org, sign up to answer some questions, share it with your friends and your network, particularly if you work in a field that you know is not a very broadly or very wide field. If you have access to donations, if you have access to a corporate fund of some sort, or you're not even funds, if you're able to organize some colleagues to set aside some time to collectively answer some questions for the amazing and wonderful students of the Career Village Network, make it happen. Uh, reach out to the folks via the website or reach out to Jared. Thank you so much for listening. If you found my conversation with Jared fun, inspirational, and informational, please do share it out with a friend. If you're listening, or share it with your friends on Instagram. Tag us at Dear Asian Americans, and I would be happy to engage with you. Follow and like us on the platforms at the Asian Americans. If you want to come on the show yourself or if you want to share some thoughts with me, some feedback or some uh, recommendations, please let me know. DM us on the account at the Asian Americans on Instagram or find us anywhere and just let us know. Thanks again so much for listening. Wherever you are, whenever you may be listening to this, we wish you all the health, happiness in the world. Stay safe out there. Continue to celebrate APAM. Dear Asian Americans, celebrate, support, inspire. Thank you so much for listening. Signing off, this has been your host, Jerry Wan.